0: Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. The panelists had questions for me in the vintage dinner. As you recall, it was uh, Eddie Healy, Frank Costella, Kevin O'Keefe, Brian Flynn, and Jim Telford. We had a good time. Thank you, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, as well as Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So. Five questions from five great guys. I tried to answer them and we had a little bit of a round table and it was a good time. So we'll do it again. If you're interested in being on one of these virtual dinners, uh, just email me and uh, let me know and and I'll add you to the list. So thanks again. And uh, here it is. What do you think
1: is going on in the hobby right now that is causing a lag in the popularity of baseball collecting? Because it seems right now it's all about basketball and then football after that. The core is still in baseball, but those sports do a little bit better job of marketing themselves than baseball does. What do you think should happen on the baseball side of
0: the business? To... So baseball is going 10 miles an hour. Football is going 20 miles an hour. Basketball is going 30 miles an hour. Soccer is going 40 miles an hour. <laughs> so some of it's catch up. Even when they're going faster, baseball still has a very strong base. Yes. It's absolutely king in the vintage world. In the modern world, they hold their own. But basketball has just become a behemoth. And basketball's done the better job of marketing their the players. Absolutely. They market the franchises too. You could
1: walk down the street right now and ask anybody who is LeBron James, and anybody could tell you. Yeah. But maybe half could tell you who Mike Trout is. Maybe and- more
0: than half. But still, a 60-game season last year was a step back compared to the other sports. Football got in a whole season, football's got a half season and then a kind of an extended playoff with some creativity. So baseball is in deficit based on what was going on on the field. Maybe this is the year that they re-energize.
1: I hope so. Okay. Eddie. I'm very curious about, from having that law student perspective, the the and activity in the industry, the private equity activity. My seniors about Attic Investments or Alt-1 and Nintendo. It's really intriguing to me. I think sometimes when you speak on things like that, whether it's SPACs in the industry maybe, you, you often say things that no one else knows. So I'm very curious when you talk about them, what is coming in that? arena that might involve vintage cards? Or is vintage not really a driver of activity in a private equity fund or spec SPAC fund because it, it's less likely to pop like a more modern card?
0: There's two ways to approach coming into this industry. What we're seeing is the headline-making splash. But the other way, which I think would be more appropriate for vintage, is the stealth. So you don't want to come in and say, hey, I'm going to buy up all the vintage cards. All you're doing is telling people to, hey, raise your prices because we've got a a new person coming in. I think vintage would be more stealth. The other thing is, I think big business, private equity, SPACs, all those things are looking for big established companies that they can take to the next level and then get out. But I think we're going to see a bunch more activity, again, not stealth but on the smaller enterprise, the startups, the two guys in the garage, some people with strategic money getting behind some smaller companies that are not hitting it right now, but with some capital behind them, some sharp, hardworking few guys that have a good idea. You put some capital behind them, but it may need to be stealth until they can hit the ground running. Otherwise, the disruptor gets snuffed out before they get any momentum. I think we're going to see a whole bunch more creativity in the next year. And I think some of it's going to be stealth. You can say, where did that come from? You're going to find out they've been working on it for a year. And if somebody gave them some money, these investments that are making the headlines, it's because they're eight figures and nine figures. But even seven figures goes a long way in this industry. And six figures can go a long way and could get something started that would be very exciting. When you're talking about technology, it's not capital intensive. In most cases, if you've got a good idea for a better mousetrap, there's a bunch of people coming in, new grading companies and all that. So I see it as trying to make a splash. You want to make a splash if you're already doing something where you want people to say, oh, get attention. You want to be stealth if you're not quite ready for prime time and you want to work your way into it. And some of them are going to really hit. And they are going to be some disruptors that are going to change the way things are done. And five years from now, we're going to say, where did that come from? Okay, Jim Telford,
1: question. You got to get in your flux capacitor on this one in the DeLorean. Go back to when you were still at Beckett. When Beckett grading was first starting, if you were still involved principally or in its infancy, let's say from a grading perspective, there's a number of new grading companies that are coming out or uh, the new leadership that we have at PSA, for instance. If you were put back in that place, something that intrigues me is happening right now. And this was really what we were referring to earlier fueling the basketball craze, the the emergence of global economies, the BRIC currencies, specifically brazil russia india china the popularity of bat- that basketball is playing there and with the seeded startups that are starting what would you do if you were involved still with beckett do you think opening satellite grading locations uh, globally is the next thing that we're going to be seeing on the horizon or do you feel as if those economies and a number of the totalitarian regimes are involved uh, are not something that you would choose to be involved with? I'll
0: talk about two decisions I made well, that both of them were to go too slow. One hurt me, one I don't think did. And they respond to your question. Number one is if I could get it, was it 93 gigawatts or something? It's a 93 million or 1,000 gigawatts that Doc got uh, Marty McFly to jump back into the DeLorean. So if I could go back to the beginning of a BGS, I would have been way, way more aggressive on the registry. That's something that I thought we were with an established competitor that had a registry and it it mattered, but we just thought, Hey, we just need to get going. We should have gone hard for the registry right from the beginning and really promoted that. I'm more of an operations guy than a marketing guy. I just think let's build a better mousetrap, but our mousetrap might've been better, but PSA had the registry. The other thing that I was slow on, which I don't think was a mistake. I think PSA need to be really careful. They're a private company now, but these satellite locations are not trivial. You're dealing with very valuable cards. And uh, I guess there's can be omnipresent cameras. But we were very slow to have satellite offices, even on the intake, because you're dealing with very expensive cards that people are sending in. And there's a lot of mysterious disappearance that can happen. So I, I think they need to tread lightly. I know they're going to move in that direction because they've said that. But I was reluctant to move very aggressively into that, even to the point of submission centers, other than the bulk submitters that we encouraged, because there's a chain of custody, okay? It's theirs until they ship it to us. After we receive it, then we're responsible. But if you have a corporate location on the East Coast, West Coast, you better have really honest, reliable people and really solid systems and mechanisms to detect when and audit procedures. I don't want there to be a controversy or a scandal, but I believe I was too conservative on both those. I think I was wrong with registry. I think it was right at the time about expanding into other locations. The guys at BGS, there's a real esprit de corps of all those guys. They're in this closed space that they have to stay in, and it's not 24-7. They don't have a sentence, but they enjoy it because there's an esprit de corps there. If you spread it out all over the country, I think you'll lose some of the magic, but I, I know it's going to happen. So a uh, good question, Jim. But Frank, what's your question?
1: My question for you is, how do you see technology advancements or automation becoming part of grading?
0: I, totally going to be part of grading. It's just I, I'm, I have a hard time seeing right now with a technology that I can project ahead that'll be the whole picture of grading. You would think centering would be easier for a computer, but you almost have to know all the different border types. You were talking about the 54 tops. They're notoriously hard to evaluate in the centering because I think even the perfect centering doesn't have an equal border because of the way they're laid out. A computer is just going to say, hey, there's more white stuff on this side than there is on the other side. And they're going to (laughs) ding it. Yes, there'll be increased technology all the way, but will we be totally robotic? Or artificial intelligence. I I don't know that'll happen in my lifetime. The problem is if you magnify by 100x, then no card is mint. No card is gem mint. No card is pristine. So you have to ratchet it down to get it what the eye can see. And then the eye can see that. So the computer's not an advantage if it's going to detect all these things that people don't care about. And the collectors are going to throw up their arms and say, wait a minute, there's surface acne, some little indentation there that's imperceptible. So yeah, technology is going to increase and I hope it's used responsibly and I hope collectors are wary and I hope PSA and BGS and SGC and all of them take it one step at a time and they will. One's going to take a step, it's going to work and the others are going to copy. Yeah, technology is here to stay and it's going to increase and that's a good thing. Getting out too far ahead, not a good thing. Kevin, one of the most fascinating episodes, at least for me, was the Tribute to You episode you did on uh, Mr. Mintz, Alan Rosen, from the 80s through the 90s, outside of a hobby. He was the face of the hobby, interviewed in Sports Illustrated, Big Feature, on Good Morning America, and he always was omnipresent in the Krause publications with the cash and buying, you know, big purchases. So he didn't advertise with you, but any sh- stories you could Share with us because I just find him so fascinating and rest in peace, Mr. Rosen. I appreciate the sensitivity with which you asked that question. Uh, Alan and I were pretty good buddies when he got in the industry and he was certainly a a market maker and many other things and was an amazing contributor to the strength and growth of the industry. Then there came a time when he got frustrated at me for something. I, I think he believed, again, this is my side of it. I thought he thought that he set the market. And I was unwilling to say, Alan, you're a big part of the market. You've got all these transactions, but you're also the main one talking about it. There's a lot of other deals going down. You're not the whole market. And I don't know that hurt his feelings. That that sounds petty, but he was an amazing guy. And, and his drive was such that he wanted to be number one. He wanted to be the best. And I, I think he was at what he did. Okay. So in summary, I've got an autograph card from Mr. Mint, from Alan, and he's going to be on my wall. So that's a form of tribute to him. I want to honor his memory because I think he was a huge part of the growth of the industry. No, he did advertise with us for a long time. Okay. There came a time when he didn't. That was when we had this difference of opinion about his total impact on the market, and, and I wasn't diminishing it. Other than I was saying well, you're not the whole story, but I think he misinterpreted that. And Dave Slipka was a peacemaker. I think toward the end it was a lot better. But I, I'm not saying I'm devoid of, of ego but I'm not the one fanning $100 bills out either. I think very bombastic and in a positive way and selling himself, but just to be able to hear some of those stories where he made XYZ purchase and he walked into the kitchen table and here was this lady and this is how it ended up and finally
1: closed in the sale. I think those type of stories are fascinating.
0: I actually have some stories like that too. They're probably not involving as many hundred dollar bills as Alan Rose. But one thing that's not known about Alan is he had a very loyal cohort of guys that he was the front man. He was the guy that made the deals. And then he was really good about taking care of his lieutenants. He had a system that really worked. By the time he got really rolling, Kevin, I was mainly doing price guides. So I wasn't in any way a competitor of his. So I stopped doing all those buying trips when I started doing price guides. What you guys were saying is it doesn't matter how old the story is. If it's a good story, tell it. For sure. Because I guess what goes around comes around. Here's another distinction because we're trying to focus a little bit on Alan Rosen. I think he was pretty much a one-man guy when he went out there. Now, when he brought the stuff back, he parlayed it out pretty brilliantly. Whereas when I went out on these buying trips, typically... I had another guy, more than one different guy that I worked with over the years. But over the decade of the 70s, I had several guys I worked with, awesome guys, very trustworthy. So we'd have a good time, but when somebody came in or if two people came in, and so the trust was there, we both put in the same amount of money, we equitably split the stuff. And that story you told pro- about in a recent podcast about that trip to Boston with the half dozen other cohorts, and they left yep. you to decide to <laughs> divvy it up? Just wow. There, there was amazing stuff in there, but it's like I say, I would have gotten a hernia if I tried to steal anything. I was just <laughs> moving the cards around, and I made these even stacks, piles. There were 12 guys invited into that buying syndicate that was formed just for that trip and everybody put in the same amount of money. And so there had to be some level of trust because at these be six locations. We brought it all back to the central location and it was overwhelming. But there's eight kinds of smart. I'm at least one of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm not overwhelmed by a bunch of data and a bunch of cards. So I, I said, I know how to do this and I'll pick last. They like the sound of that. <laughs> and it was like a small meeting room in a hotel where there, there was no place to hide the cards. They were just there on the floor. We moved all the furniture away, and people could look but not touch. So they, they'd look down the row and look at the pile, and, and they'd say, I want this one. And we drew numbers. So I was number 12. I picked last. Whoever picked number one went first. And they could pick any pile, and everybody was pleased. They No one was displeased. The man-